Well, I don't know about you guys, uh, but I have a football fever. Does anybody else have football fever? By show of hands? It's okay to raise your hands in church, okay? We're not Pentecostals. We can do this right now. We can raise our hands in church. That's right. I have football fever. Uh, and, and one of the things, when I think about football, one of the, a lot of different movies come to my mind, but one of the movies that comes to mind, don't pay attention to that yet, okay? We'll get there. One of the movies that comes to my mind is Remember the Titans. Remember the Titans is, is one of my favorite movies. And there's a scene in that movie that always comes to my mind when I think about Remember the Titans. And it's, it's a moment when their coach, Coach Herman, coach Herman Boone, wakes up the, the football players in the middle of the night during training camp. And he says, okay, we're going to go on a run, a long run. And he, they run from their training camp all the way to the battle where, they, where the Battle of Gettysburg took place. Now, if you know anything about Remember the Titans, Remember the Titans is more than just a football movie. It's a movie about overcoming racial strife in, in the civil rights movement. It's, it's a movie about overcoming racial strife. So while they were trying to become integrated as a football team, they were really trying to do more than that. The battles that that team was facing was more than just a football battle. The, t- the battles that they were facing were an integration of people battle. And so when he ran with those, those uh, football players all the way to the, the grounds where, where Gettysburg took place... He tells them, he says, if we don't come together, if we don't band together, we will be destroyed. And he wasn't talking about football. He was talking about life. If we don't band together, then our mission is going to fall apart. We will be destroyed. Now, I say that not because uh, you know, I want you to go home and watch the movie or anything like that. If you want to, go for it. But I say that because that is a great word for us about what it means to be a body of unified people. Because if we're not a body of unified people under the common purpose, then we will be destroyed. Then our mission, too, will fall apart. There's a, a valuable and an importance of having a vision of one unit being unified for a common purpose. So, for the church, what is the common pers- purpose that you and I have been called to? You and I have been called to be disciples of Jesus, to be followers of Jesus, like I was mentioning with the students just a moment ago. Jesus has called us to a very, very simple lifestyle. I'm not saying it's easy. He never said it was easy, but he did say it was very simple. He said, follow me. Come and follow me. That is a very simple command. He wants us to be his disciples. So, church, if we are going to be obedient in unity, then Spring Hill, our church, must be a church that doesn't just make converts, but makes disciples. Spring Hill must be a church of of not just converts, not just people that believe in Jesus, but that follow Jesus. And that should transform everything that we do. Because we're not just people who have been converted. We are people who have given our lives to being a follower, a disciple of Jesus. And this is the vision of the future of Spring Hill. So this graphic that you'll see behind me right now, and, and I've, I've talked about this day for a couple of weeks now, that this is Vision Sunday, if you want to call it that. But it's important, just like for a football team and, and Coach Herman Boone, which is based on a true story, by the way, just like that, to be bound together and unified over a common purpose, how much more valuable it is for us who are waging a spiritual war to be not destroyed, but be unified under the common purpose. So church, this behind me is the vision for the future of Spring Hill. And this isn't some risque, oh man, he's going out on a limb with this one. This is a firmly biblical foundation that is not new. 
We're simply revitalizing and rejuvenating something that has been before your eyes many, many times before. The thing, thing at the top there, that spring you'll to have the aim of church discipleship, that's not like a motto or anything. I, I couldn't really think of a, a better way to say that. But really what that means is, if discipleship is at the core of everything that we do, then we will be a biblical New Testament church. If discipleship, not just converts, but if discipleship is at the center of everything that we do, we will be a biblical New Testament church. And you'll see these three things, and there's arrows because they're all kind of interconnected, is that we will see every family that belongs to Spring Hill discipled. That we will see a next generation of growing disciples, and that we, Spring Hill, will become and continue to be a going and sending church of disciples. Now you see the common word in all of those is disciple, to be a true disciple. Well, to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to do all of those things. Our pursuit is biblical discipleship. Now, part of this is a little bit redundant, okay? Part of discipleship is a little redundant because, honestly, we talk about it all the time. And that is the individual, personal lifestyle of discipleship under Jesus. It is following Christ on the individual level. You, if you are a Christian, as a person... You were called to follow Jesus personally. That's kind of redundant. You wouldn't have signed up for Christianity if you didn't understand that, right? That's the redundant aspect of it, that we are called to an individual personal lifestyle of discipleship for Jesus. But there is more to it than just a personal devotion between you and God. And we're going to manifest this in three different ways, and they're on the screen behind me. So the first one is every family disciple. Every family discipled. And we're going to go through each one of these with a different passage of Scripture that I think reinforces what this is. So get ready for your Bible drills today, okay? So the first one is going to be Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Now, our culture tells us that it is the pastor's job to make better Christians of people, right? That it is my job as the pastor to take along my my people, my church, and make your family better Christians. Because that is not quite biblical. That's not quite biblical. Certainly, it is my job to pastor, or another word for that would be to shepherd, or another word for that would be to oversee, to shepherd the families of of Spring Hill. But guys, get this. I am not the primary disciple maker of your family. I'm not the primary discipler or shepherd of your family. The husband or the father is the primary shepherd of your family. The husband or the father is the primary shepherd of your family. Now, I use that word shepherd intentionally because a shepherd is... When we think about shepherd, you think about sheep, right? You think about someone that is looking for the welfare of those that he takes care of. Well, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. He called himself the good shepherd because he was guiding and protecting and leading sheep, us. He was the good shepherd. Now, the Bible says that husbands are to their wives and their kids as Jesus is to the church. The Bible says that husbands are to their wives and kids, their families, as Jesus is to the church. Look at uh, Ephesians 5. I'm going to read three different or four different verses. Verse 25 first, okay? Look at verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
Look at verse 28. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And then verses 31 and 32. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. The husband, or the father, is the head of his family. He is the primary shepherd of his family. As Jesus is the shepherd to his church, the husband, or the father, is a shepherd to his family. Now, being a shepherd, and this is, a, this is probably an oversimplification, but being a shepherd has three main functions, okay? And these are biblical functions, and they will be rooted in Scripture. But being a shepherd has three main functions. The first is being a protector and advocate. Being a protector and advocate. And I want you to think about being a shepherd in the family as I say these things. Being a protector and an advocate. Now, we, weren't told, we won't turn there, but in 1 Samuel chapter 17, it tells us as David, a shepherd boy, okay, David, King David, who will eventually be, David protected his sheep really to the expense almost of his life. Bears and lions and wild beasts would go and try to take his sheep and attack and kill his sheep. And, and David went and fought for, on behalf of his sheep to protect them. And he's fighting for sheep. He's not even fighting for people. Husbands and fathers, if you're going to be a shepherd of your family, you are a protector and an advocate for them. The second function is a shepherd as a leader. To shepherd is to lead with wisdom and discernment. Psalm 23, which most of you are probably familiar with, says, He makes me lie down in green pastures. Listen to this word. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Now, who's the shepherd He's talking about? Jesus, the good shepherd. But again, fathers and husbands, that is our model. To be a biblical and wise leader of the household. The third is that a shepherd is a nurturer. A nurturer. And I see nurturement uh, take place in two different ways. The first is through discipline. The same psalm, Psalm 23 says, Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. In other words, your belt that you take off and give me a whooping with, it comforts me. It wasn't very comforting for me when I was a kid. Okay, But what it's saying here is that discipline is comforting. It is nurturing. We need discipline, right? And a shepherd, a father, a husband... You nurture your family, not only through discipline, but through love. The same psalm says, He restores my soul. Shepherds aren't tyrants. They're loving leaders. The same way that David cared for his flock, you were to care so much more for the betterment of your family. Now the fact of the matter is that husbands, fathers, you will come up short of the standard of shepherding that we have set forward just now. You will come up short of that standard. You won't be the perfect shepherd. But, Jesus is. Jesus, Jesus is. He is the good shepherd. He is the perfect shepherd. He is the one who laid down his life for his sheep. He is the one who leads with the ultimate and and outstanding form of perfect wisdom and discernment. He is the one who perfectly comforts us. He is the good shepherd. Right? However, you are still called to strive after this. 
But again, you will fall short. And for that reason, men, you need help. You need help. To strive after a biblical model of shepherding and discipling in the home, we must be equipping and shepherding the men in the church, is what I'm getting at. The shepherd needs to be shepherded, in other words. And I'm no exception. The shepherd needs to be shepherded. Your pastor needs to be pastored, shepherded. We need help in this, because we are not the perfect shepherd. Now this is not going to happen overnight. Surprise. It's not going to happen overnight. But men, you are called to grow as shepherd, and as pastor, and as the deacons of this church, Spring Hill, we are called to help in achieving that mission. The word deacon, if you were to look at the original language that this was written in, the word deacon literally means to serve or to minister to someone. To serve or to minister to someone. There should be no one that calls Spring Hill home that goes unserved, unloved, and unministered to. It just shouldn't be the case. If that's the case, we're failing at our job. Spring Hill should not have anyone that belongs to Spring Hill that falls below that standard of loving care and servant. Uh, servitude. This means that we must invest in the men of the church. And perhaps this looks like, from the get-go, having men's ministry in some capacity. Men, you need to be led. You need to be shepherded. Because you are the primary shepherds of your homes. Is there a man absent from the picture? Perhaps a widow or, or an orphan even. Deacons are called to minister to orphans and widows in Acts chapter 6. Deacons I know there are only a few of you in here, and and I'm a pastor. We are called to fulfill the ministry of service to the flock. And this is a biblical mandate. Every family, I mean, that first thing, the first thing up there does say every family discipled. Isn't that a pretty lofty goal? Yeah, it is a pretty lofty goal. That's exactly right. But yes, every family discipled. And perhaps... Already, this has begun in in a way. Earlier this week, I met with two of the deacons, and we are looking at the membership role and and figuring out a way that we can already begin breaking it up and praying individually by name for each and every one of you that call Spring Hill your church home. We're not taking this lightly. We're taking this seriously. Because we have a biblical mandate to shepherd the flock, to love and care for and serve the flock. And so we've broken up the role and started to, to pray in this way, or we will. And later we're going to be examining what reaching this goal looks like more specifically. The basic biblical task of deacons, then, seems to be helping those in need, and this is biblical, of food, of water, of clothing, as well as ministering through the hospitality and welcoming of the church of God. Deacons should serve serve physical and spiritual needs in the church. Now, all of you have needs, right? Every single one of you have needs in some capacity. Perhaps you have questions about church stuff, or you just need prayer in general. You do have spiritual needs, though. And the deacons and I are on the mission of fulfilling my call as pastor, their call as deacons. But don't forget this, men. You are the primary disciple-maker of your household. And our goal is to see that you and your family are growing to be more like Jesus. A lofty aim, but certainly a biblical aim. So the first one is to see every single family disciple. And that is a hard and a lofty aim, but we're going to do it. This is the vision for the church, and it's a biblical vision. We're going to do it. Okay. The second is to see a next generation of growing disciples. To see a next generation of growing disciples. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1. 
2 Timothy chapter 1. While you're getting there, please listen to this. The temptation of the Christian life is to run the race of faith with only the goal of finishing your own race. Okay? I'll say that again for those of you that that missed it. The temptation of the Christian life is to run the race of faith with only the goal of finishing our own race. Now the danger in this is a lack of generational multiplication. The danger of only being attentive to running our own race is a lack of generational multiplication. Look at this passage in 2 Timothy chapter 1, of verses 13 and 14, real quick, okay? Verses 13 and 14. It says, Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. This is Paul writing to his friend Timothy, his young friend Timothy. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and the love that are in Jesus Christ. Listen to this. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, listen, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Look over at chapter 2, verse 2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Generational multiplication. Verse 13 told you, it said, hold fast to sound doctrine. Verse 14 said, guard the deposit, the, 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 the gospel that you have received that has been given to you. And then verse 2 said, pass it on. Paul is telling Timothy, don't hold it, don't hoard it. Pass on this stuff so that they can then go and pass it on. And pass it on. And pass it on. And pass it on. There's multiplication to be had here. Now, this isn't one generation multiplying amongst its own generation. No, there must be generational multiplication taking place. Because if it isn't the case, that generation will leave, will go. Will go receive their crown of glory to be with God. And what happens next? If there hasn't been generational multiplication, what happens next? It's gone, isn't it? Now, Spring Hill has a longevity of faithful saints. A longevity of faithful saints. Some of you guys have been here for decades. You've been Christians for decades. And we see a longevity, long time, of faithful, biblical believers. And you have served And in a great capacity, you have loved people extremely well. You've been extremely generous. You've uh, led in the church. You have encouraged people in the church. You have prayed in the church. And you have been a faithful saint of Jesus. Great longevity. But here's the reality check. There will come a day that your race will come to an end. And that's not bad news. It will be your gain, as Paul says. But there will be a time when those of you that have been in the longevity of the race, your race will come to a close. But hear this. Will you be able to say that you not only ran your race, but you also paved the way and saw the next generation run alongside you? Will you be able to say that at the end of your race? That you paved the way for the generation that came behind you and made sure and saw that they were growing in godliness too. The church needs intergenerational leaders. Now when I say church leader, I don't mean 
Sunday school teachers necessarily, or ministry leaders, or pastors even necessarily. When I say a church leader, a leader is a maturing person of faith that people look to as an example of Jesus. That's it. They don't have to carry the torch of of leading some ministry. A leader is somebody who is maturing in their faith, and that people can look to and say, that person is a leader in the faith. I want to do what that person is doing, because they seem to be following Jesus closely. Well, in this sense of the term, the church has to have many leaders. Many leaders. Not just Sunday school teachers, not just ministry leaders, but many leaders. Maturing believers. I mean, look around. I mean it, look around. Do you see a multitude of leaders in their 50s? Seriously, look around. Do you see a multitude of leaders in their 40s? In their 30s? 20s? Teens. Do you see the multitude of leaders in their 20s and teens and their 30s? Do you see a decreasing trend when you look around? Now what should that tell us? What should that tell us? Part of God's vision for Spring Hill is to aim at seeing a next generation of leaders being trained in the fear of God. We should be able to look around and see a multitude and say, those are the ones that are running the race alongside me. Those are the ones that are going to lead the next generation behind them. We should be able to look around and see that. Part of the mission in seeing that take place, I'm, I'm, I'm exposing this vision to you right now, but it has already been in my mind for at least the past three months. And I wanted to actually do this in May, but I knew that you guys go on vacation like every week, so I couldn't do that, right? I wanted you to be able to be here for this. But part of this, this vision, it was starting the college and career ministry was starting the college and career ministry. And, and not just so that we have a time to hang out and, and uh, you know, eat some food and stuff. No, these students are reading and understanding their Bibles. And we're having conversations that are real conversations. Why? Not just because I want them to learn their Bibles. We're training up leaders. We're training up leaders. And not just people between 18 and 30. No, that, it doesn't stop there. The youth needs to be training up leaders. Sunday school teachers, people who are maybe discipling you. The whole goal is that you will be a church leader. And again, I'm not saying a Sunday school teacher. I'm not saying a ministry leader. I'm saying a growing and maturing person of faith because there will be a time when your grandfather's not here anymore. And the church will be for you. And you'll be passing it on to the next generation. And if you are not about that business, multi-generational development and generation the church will fall apart. And we're not going to let that happen. Young people need to be invested in by those who have been running this race for the long haul. Not only that, but Spring Hill needs to become a church where young people feel at home. Spring Hill needs to become a church where young people feel at home. Now, I'm not saying that we bring in a smoke machine and a light show, okay? I'm not saying that we do that, but this needs to be an environment that bridges the generational gap of what the next generation perhaps may be better ministered by. Maybe we can do this and sacrifice in this way to see that people in their 20s or 30s will be growing here and be ministered to better. This needs to be a place that is about the business of multi-generational growth. Now your pastor and your deacons, we're not going to wreck the church. But this vision does mean that we will approach decisions with the current and the next generation in mind. Why? 
Because generational multiplication is vital to ongoing biblical discipleship. If we are not doing this, this church will die with those that have been here for the longevity. And we're not going to let that happen. A next generation of growing disciples. And that will be part of our vision. Every family discipled, and that will be part of our vision. The third is to see a going and sending church of disciples. To see a going and sending church of disciples. Turn your Bibles to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. One vital aspect of faithful discipleship, and again, that's the hinge point that we're all coming back to, faithful discipleship. One of the vital aspects of that is being serious about seeing all kinds of people come to know Jesus. To see all kinds of people coming to know Jesus. This is your neighbor. This is the person that you see at Phoebes every once in a while. This is the person that you see across from you at work. This is the person that you see uh, perhaps on the news station in, in an international country. It's seeing all of these people come to know Jesus. That is part of the DNA of the Christian. Look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 8. Verses 6 through 8. This is, this is uh, Jesus, talking about Jesus here, addressing his disciples after his resurrection. All right? He says, uh, so, so it says, So when they had come together, they asked him, this is Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Is it over? Basically they're saying. Look at his response in verse 7. It's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Guys, the early church, that is the consummation, the beginning of the church. Okay, and here we are still today. We talk about unstoppable, an unstoppable force. The church, unstoppable, began at this time, and Jesus said, here's the mission. The early church had a mission, and we see it in three ways that he says here. He says here, uh, these different areas, he says in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was like their hometown, right? It's Millport. That was exactly where they were. He said, in Jerusalem right here, this is your mission field, Millport. This is your mission field. Columbus or, or Vernon or wherever Kennedy, wherever you come from. That's your mission field, he's saying. You're Jerusalem. And then he says, Judea and Samaria. These will be the neighboring areas. These are domestic areas. Okay? Perhaps this is Lamar County. Or we can even expand it and say Alabama. Or let's just go ahead and say domestically the United States. Okay? We have a calling to be on mission, not just in our city, but around us. We have a calling to do this. And then he says, to the ends of the earth. Now, that's not him saying that he believes in a flat earth, okay? He's saying it is never-ending. You go everywhere that the earth has people. That is your mission field. Now, what are we taking them? Look again at verse 8. Receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be, don't miss this, Jesus says, my witnesses. Now, what is a witness? If perhaps we think about a courtroom setting, a witness is somebody who has seen something and they go and testify and say, this is what happened, I, I was there, it went down just like this, and, and this is exactly how things went down. Now, if we are to be witnesses, what are we witnesses of? What are we witnesses of? Now, I said earlier that we're not just converts, we're disciples, but a vital part of our discipleship is being a convert. 
is that there was a time in your life, if you were a Christian, that Jesus transformed your life. Don't miss that language. You are a different person now than you were before. Now, what are we witnesses to? We go and tell people what Jesus has done to transform your life. And what is that? That Jesus came and lived a perfect and sinless life. And He didn't just come because He felt like it or because God got bored. He came because He had a mission. And His mission was restoring a sinful and broken humanity. You fall short, Christian. You fall short, unbeliever. You are imperfect. You have things about you that are broken inside and your spirit is separated from God. But God intervened. And He sent His Son Jesus to restore your relationship with Him. That we don't have to be divorced from God anymore. We don't have to be estranged from God anymore. But that God has restored humanity to Himself. And He did that how? Because we have witnessed and seen the power of God through the cross of Christ. And this is where we are witnesses. Because there is a generation before us that made sure that we could be witnesses to. And so, Jesus says, go be my witnesses. Go and take it. Go and do it. Be witnesses of the saving work of Christ. Where? Both domestically, at your workplace, in the United States, and internationally. Now, what is this going and sending business? Let's, let's break that apart for a second. To, to be a going church is, is quite simple. It means to go and live on mission. It means to go and be a witness. It's pretty simple. If we're going to be a going and sending church, first thing is to be a going church. And that means to go and take the gospel, take this transforming work that we are witnesses of, and give it to people that don't have it yet. Now, I said that this is domestically. And as far as I'm concerned, church, this is non-negotiable. Okay? As you are going, Great Commission, as you are going, testify of the gospel and the good news of Jesus. Non-negotiable. You will be going on mission, or you will not be a Christian. Period. If that is not part of your DNA, then part of your DNA is missing. Okay? That is a non-negotiable. We are daily going and living on mission. But there's also a mentality where we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth. And perhaps some of you guys are thinking, I don't have a passport. (laughs) Or, I've never flown before, and that kind of terrifies me. Or, I don't know, that's really expensive. And there are things in your mind that perhaps are barriers. Now, I realize, and there are legitimate reasons that, that some of you cannot go on international missions. That, that is a reasonable thing for, for many of us. But for the vast majority of you, this is, this is one man's opinion, I guess. I, this isn't gospel, okay? You should find a reason to go. You should find a reason to go. Somewhere. At some time. It could be in five years, in ten years, it could be next year. You've got to go on mission. And as far as I'm concerned, the Northeast for us is international. That is a different world. Utah is international. There's more Mormons there than Christians. That is a Mormon world. That is an international world for us. That's not negotiable, Christian. You've got to go. And the reason, for that, the reason I say that is because we're going to. We're going to go. We're going to go somewhere. I don't know where yet. I've been thinking about it. But I'm waiting for certain things to fall into place where I'll have some more clarity on that. And I don't want to say anything because I don't want to take anybody's hopes up and then things fall through. But we're going to go. We're going to go somewhere. And then we'll probably go more than one place eventually. Because I think we have a call. 
church. We have a call. And when your master calls, you don't say, I don't feel like it. You say, okay, when am I going? Church, we have a call to go and live on mission. And we can do that now without saving money, without praying about getting on a plane, without doing all these things and jumping all these hoops. You can do that now in your workplace. You can do that now in your school. You can do that now in your daycare. You can do it wherever you go. We're a going church. And so we're going to go. The second is that we're a sending church. We're a going church, and if somebody's going to go, somebody's got to be sent. Right? If somebody's going to go, they have to be sent. To be a sending church, in my opinion, in my, in my mindset, it has two different avenues of exploration. The first is that a sending church is a church of prayer. A sending church is a church that prays for those that are going. So if we're going to be about the business of the gospel, we have to be about the business of prayer. Now it's easy to say, I'll pray for you. Right? We say those words probably pretty frequently. I'll pray for you. It's a whole different thing to devote solitude and time to going before God on the behalf of someone else, isn't it? It's a totally different ballgame. But we are called to be a sending church, and we need to be sending by praying. You can ask any missionary, okay? Ask any missionary, and they will tell you that prayer is essentially vital to their mission. Any missionary will tell you that. Hey, I would not have been successful if not for the prayers of the saints back home. They will tell you that. And so we must be about prayer. So the first avenue that we can send is through prayer. The second is through funding. The second is through funding. Now I will say this, and I will affirm the heck out of you, church. You guys give so, so faithfully. You guys give so faithfully. You, I mean, I don't want to, I didn't plan on saying this, but the average church gives less than half of what our church gives to missions. And I'm not patting myself on the back. I'm patting you on the back, church. You've been extremely, extremely faithful. And if you're not part of that faith, then I encourage you to be part of that faith. And those that are giving, if you do not give right now, they will tell you that they've been blessed by giving. Because it is obedience to give. And so, to be a sending church means that we are funding. We, we do Myers-Mallory, we do Lottie Moon, we do Annie Armstrong, we do cooperative program. You can pick up the budget. We'll have a business meeting the first uh, Wednesday after the first Sunday of the month. You don't have to remember that right now. But we'll have a business meeting. You can pick up a financial report and see, wow, we give a lot of money to people that are going already. Certainly that is the case. And I affirm you, church, in doing that. But continue. That's part of the race. Challenge your giving. That's part of the race. And if that's not a part of what you're already doing, I encourage you to be part of sending by funding. Even if it means start small. So even if you can't go internationally, you can at least send internationally. We adopted a family uh, of, of believers that are living on mission. As a church, we adopted this family, uh, Zach and Janae Masteller. Janae is my sister, and they live in the Middle East. They live in Lebanon. Uh, and they have been living there for just under a year, right? Um, but they'll be there for indefinitely. I, I don't know when the next time I'll see my sister will be. But they live there, and, and as a church, we have decided to support them. We have decided to send them. Because we want to be part of not just praying for them, and they would tell you, that is essential. And they will even say, continue, continue, continue. But we're also part of funding them. We have fund, decided to fund them once every semester, or uh, I'm sorry, every quarter, $500. Which for our church, that's just small potatoes. But for them, it can make a big difference. Okay? It can make a big difference. And it means, I've told my sister, 
you know, I know that this guy's help this is helping you guys a lot, but it's helping us a lot. Because part of our DNA needs to be being a sending church. And they have been a tremendous blessing in that we are being able to see what they're doing. Now, I said they live in Lebanon. I don't know how much you've paid attention. Uh, the, the news has kind of been dominated by like weird solar things lately, so maybe you haven't been uh, paying attention too much. But there's a serious war going on in Syria. Uh, and because of that, people are fleeing that country to the neighboring countries. I'm sure you're aware of this, but over the immigration ban and everything. Part of the people that are going there, a lot of them are going to Lebanon. A lot of them are going to the neighborhood where Zach and Janae live. So I say that kind of as a disclaimer because we actually have a video from them, and I'm about to show it. Um, this is about a three-minute video. Uh, Zach and Janae are in Thessalonica, uh, which is one of the places that Paul wrote letters uh, to churches. And they're there um, because they're having to renew their visa, uh, and they're going back to Lebanon soon. But they wanted to just give you a word of update and, uh, and ask for you to continue to pray and encourage them. Okay, Jonathan, can you go and show that for us? That's Arabic for Hey Church, how are y'all? I'm Janae. And I'm Zach, and we are the Mastellers. So uh, right now, uh, we are on our visa trip. Uh, every three months, we have to leave Lebanon to uh, renew our visa. And uh, for this visa trip, we decided that uh, we were going to come to Greece and uh, visit some of the places that Paul would have on his uh, missionary journeys. So today, we are currently in the city of Thessaloniki, or as y'all would know it, by Thessalonica. Um, we, before coming here, so we've been in Lebanon for like nine months. Um, there we uh, are working with a local church to serve refugees in that area, specifically Syrian refugees. We often tell people that the war, uh, while it's a terrible thing, it has pushed Syrians out of Syria to places where they can now hear the gospel. And Zach and I are, uh, feel called to be a part of that. So right now we're living in southern Lebanon, uh, working primarily with Syrian refugees that have been, uh, many of them have been totally unengaged, so don't know who Jesus is, don't know the gospel at all, and some um, are unreached, meaning that uh, they have very little access to the gospel. And so right now, um, what you guys are helping us do is share the gospel with people who literally just have no idea who Jesus is, um, and definitely have never heard a clear, clear story of the gospel. Um, so that's kind of what we're doing. Um, you guys have already been praying for us, and we love you guys, and we are so thankful for you. Um, a couple other ways that you can continue praying is through our language. Um, we are learning Arabic slowly but surely. Um, we need continued prayer with that. It's a very difficult language to learn, and it is very important to be able to share the gospel in the Syrian people's heart language. Another way to pray for us is there are some transitions happening in Lebanon right now. Our bosses are coming from our sending organization and from our uh, church in the States, uh, our home church, in just a few weeks. So that's a great way to be praying for us, of just kind of um, taking in the last nine months, praying through what God has done in Lebanon through us through that time, and then um, kind of reevaluating some things. So please be praying through that. And also... Um, Please, please, please continue praying for Syrian refugees um, all over the world and specifically in our region. Um, God is working and moving in their lives. Many of them are coming to faith. They're having dreams and visions of Jesus. Um, they want to know who he is. Many of them are seeking truth. And Zach and I uh, have been able to be a small, small part of that. Um, but please, please continue praying that the Lord would show himself to these people and that they would come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior and choose to pick up their cross and follow him. Um, and ultimately, go back to Syria and share the gospel there once the war ends.
One of the things that uh, we want to continue to do is continue to keep you all updated, um, and so, uh, but also come, come along the journey with us. And so that's one of the reasons why we decided that we wanted to uh, just uh, send you all a video from uh, one of the many places that Paul got to uh, come and visit and send letters to as well. So, yeah. Thank you guys so, so much for your support and your prayers. Uh, we are praying for you guys, um, and we love you all a whole, whole lot. Um, thanks again. Yep. We'll see you later. Bye. Isn't that better than just a, an organization or a, a name on a page? Uh, it makes it a lot different, and not just because it's my sister, but it makes it a lot different um, to see the faces and to hear the voices of uh, life change that is taking place. Um, those aren't organizations. Those are people, and they're not just projects. They're people. And, and seeing them come to know Jesus has already blessed Zach and Janae, but... Uh, that's our family, you guys. That's our family. And, and we get to not only go on mission, but we get to send the church. We get to send. And you and I get to be a part of that. And we have to be a part of that, even if we can't go. So, in conclusion, our vision is to be a church that's serious about discipleship, because that's what the New Testament church is. We're going to be serious about discipleship. And we're going to be serious about discipleship in three ways. Your family is going to be discipled. Husbands, it's your job. But we're going to help. And we're going to start by praying for you by name. The second is to see a next generation of growing disciples. And that might mean some changes. And that might mean some sacrifices. But church, it's going to be so worth it to see the people in the next generation come and run the race alongside you as your race comes to a conclusion. And then thirdly, we're going to be and already are, in a lot of ways, a going and sending church. But we're going to amplify that. We're going to amplify that and continue to see tangibly ways that the gospel is at work in the hearts of people. People, discipleship at its core and at its root is being a follower of Jesus. Which means the gospel must be at the center of every single thing that we do. And so, we're not going to stop being about the gospel. We're going to be about discipleship and the gospel and seeing lives changed in the name of Jesus. Will you pray with me, please? Father, it's, it's such an opportunity to be able to gather with your church. And Lord, part of casting a vision means that, that we need to pray for that vision. So, for the next few moments, Lord, it would, it would be no surprise to see your people right now on their knees. To see, even if someone feels called to the altar to pray, because Lord, this is a big day for your church. And God, not only that, but when we're talking about this transforming work, and, and, and we want to be in prayer, and, and, and at our figurative and spiritual altar, to say the very least, at the same time, Lord, there are doubtless people in this room that do not have a personal relationship with Jesus. And I said at the beginning that redundant and at the very core and fundamental of all of this is that we are entrusted a personal following, a personal discipleship with Jesus. And Father, you have died through your son Jesus for the purpose of bringing people to yourself. So Father, if there's anyone in this room that does not know you, Lord, do not let them leave this place without putting such a burden on their hearts to give their life to Christ. So Father, now as we respond 
whether it be at our seats or at an altar or praying with, with somebody around us. Help us to be serious about our vision, not because it's one man's vision, but because, because God, we see that it is a, a fundamentally New Testament church thing that we would be serious about discipleship in the church. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.